Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies him. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John. Good evening, I'm Jeremy Vine. It's 8.30 and this is Panorama. I'm honored to say that Sir David Attenborough joins us to tell us what makes us human. And is it you mentioned empathy and it was almost the last word in your essay. Is that for you the key human quality? And do you ever wish then that you had been allowed to discover it all for yourself? To those in the UK, Jeremy Vine needs little introduction. He's a veteran journalist who started out in local radio and newspapers, and he was for several years the BBC Africa correspondent based in Johannesburg, South Africa. But he's since become a very familiar face and voice as presenter of flagship programmes like BBC's Newsnight and Panorama. He currently juggles hosting two daily broadcasts, one on BBC Radio 2 and the other Channel 5 TV. That's quite apart from the fun he has hosting quiz show Eggheads. But most significantly for our purposes, he knew John Stott well, particularly when starting out in his career, and counts him as one of his true heroes. He even visited John in the last weeks of his life. So I was very grateful that Jeremy carved out time to speak about the impact John Stott had on his life. So naturally, I started by asking when they first met. Well, I think I first met him before I was born because, yeah, my dad was at um, Cambridge University and and he and, and my dad famously um, in our famously in our family was was somebody who really had not many friends. He, he'd come from a broken home and he got to Cambridge and, you know, the, the joke was he only had a pair of socks and he spent his whole life walking around looking at the socks to make sure no one nicked them. And then one day <laughs> he went to hear John Stott preach and he became a Christian. And as I say became a Christian, he had a proper thunderclap conversion that lasted him wow. the rest of his life until he died at the age of 82. And so when I met John Stott, I, I, several, obviously, decades later, I sort of felt I already knew him in a way because mm-hmm. I started going to All Souls Church and he was there. And I suddenly thought, this is the guy. This is the guy who preached to my dad, who, who because my dad became a Christian, he met my mum and my mum was a Christian already. And, and so, you know, it was it was formative. So he was part of the family in a way, certainly part of the family story. Yes. Well, it's funny. I, I would love to say that. And I did once invite John Stott to dinner and he came round to my little flat where my wife and I lived and then my dad and my mum and dad came too and we had this dinner and it was it was it wasn't like one of those things where people end up swinging off the 
of the <laughs> chandeliers. You know, it was, it was it was a very restrained. My dad is quite shy, and my dad was quite right. in awe of him. And John was always very understated. So I yes. remember thinking, oh, that go well. But yeah, it was a bit <laughs> like him coming and being a member of the family for a moment. Yes, yes. Um, so. Were you an undergraduate when you started going to All Souls yourself or was that you'd moved to London? I I had a sort of an ex my exciting Christian moment, I suppose, after I left university because I rejected it all really. And then it all came flooding back. And then I in the early in the late 80s, I was just starting at the BBC and the ne next door to the BBC was All Souls. And mm -hmm. it, it was in tune at the time with what I, I felt Christianity was, which is where you go in and it's like opening the furnace door and you get this blast of heat, you know. And mm -hmm. I that was so when I went and it was, you know, it was it was a big thing. And there was a whole group of people uh, about my age who were known as the beautiful people. And they all started dating each other. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to desperately trying to get into that group. <laughs> so it was all it was a bit of a dating thing, you know, and mm -hmm. but he was right at the apex of the whole operation. There was a guy called Richard Buse. There was a lovely mm -hmm. curate called John Cook, Steve Wookie, etc. Yep. Rico Tice arrived as I was leaving. And right at the top of it was was the rector emeritus as he, mm -hmm. as he was. And his name was I remember I walked past All Souls once and there was a bloke standing there smoking and he stopped his cigarette out without even thinking on John Stott's name. And I had a bit of a road rage. I said, you can't do that. I had a road rage moment. And uh, <laughs> I don't know whether stubbing a cigarette out on, on the rector emeritus's name is, you know, is the sort of thing that should cause a fight on the portal of the church. But anyway, I do remember that thinking this is the, the church versus the world. That was the key moment. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a metaphor, definitely. Yeah, well, it, it is, yeah. And, but the, the world does often stub its cigarette out on the church, there's no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, am I right in thinking that you were part of a, a kind of culture group? Did John invite you into this? Or, or what, what was that? I don't know how this happened, because it, basically I was, because I, I never had any kind of star quality as far as the church things were concerned and I always thought they were superstar Christians you know who could do things like mm. quote bits of the New Testament and stuff I wasn't one of them but I was at the BBC and I had I suppose given that I was in my early 20s and I would suddenly go off to Yugoslavia and do something and be shot at or whatever maybe I was I don't know but maybe I was a bit unusual there's a bit of kudos in that <laughs> maybe so I wouldn't you know it's difficult for me to look into John's John's mind on that but he had something called a men's breakfast which probably would be illegal now you know and and so it was all <laughs> blokes and the blokes in it they were lovely people but they were they all wore suits and ties so it was quite right. a kind of an austere gathering and I used to remember getting really nervous when I came to it because I think myself and there was a guy called Nelson Gonzalez who was, I think, his his teaching assistant or his assistant or something. So, so the right. two of us were really young, and we'd occasionally catch each other's eyes as if to say, "What on earth is going on here?" And someone would then read a passage from the Bible, and then someone else would say, "Well, I remember when I was ambassador to Syria or something." <laughs> I would just feel completely out of my depth. And then when someone would say, "We all want to congratulate John," and he's been he's been renewed as the Queen's personal vicar or something yes. incredible. Yeah. And I always remember thinking I had classic imposter syndrome. And mm. I once arrived, it was the summer, and I had this linen suit, which I never wore, and it was bright yellow. And when I walked in, the room fell silent, and John said, Jeremy, you are a law unto yourself. 
<laughs> I, I always I always love that. Um, but yeah, I mean, what was clear, I suppose, looking back was that he had there a collection, myself accepted, of extremely influential people who all felt that he was more influential than them. And they would be they were at the top of fashion or the law or there was a guy who was an MP, whatever, whatever. But they go into John's house and John is the boss because they respected his credentials. And he did have quite a natty blue suit, I seem to remember. So it might have um, taken, sort of put, thrown you off uh, quite, quite nicely, I would have thought. But anyway, I remember being told that, that the thing that you need to know about John Stott, he only has one suit and he mm -hmm. never has seconds when you offer dessert. So That's right. one biscuit as well. One biscuit, one dessert, one suit. And the thing about the one thing was that uh, I don't know how many books he sold, but I don't I don't know where the money went. But he certainly never he didn't have so much as a decent wristwatch. And I do mm. think that is impressive. There was to say there was nothing showy about him is the understatement <laughs> of the year. You would as much see him in the front seat of a convertible Maserati as you would see an elephant walking around on the moon. It just wasn't going to happen. Right. And uh, unlikely then. <laughs> Un unlikely and i'm thinking actually now now i'm thinking back very very sort of straight ordinary way of dressing way of talking mm. he had no airs and graces he had no ego and he had a profound kindness about him and i always mm. thought and this probably elevates him to a point where he would definitely be uncomfortable but i always thought talking to him was a bit like if you were talking to christ it would be a bit like that because it was always very personal mm. they said with bill clinton you know the reason everyone voted for him is because he if he ever started a conversation with someone he would never stop it until he was pulled away he was genuinely interested in every person mm. and i'm not comparing john to bill clinton but there's something about that you, you never felt mm. he had anywhere better to be than with you mm. And that thing where John in the Gospels is described as describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved because he clearly thinks he's number one, but he isn't. You did feel a bit like that with John. And that's a lot, leaving aside all of his learning and his books. Yeah, that is a wonderful quality for a pastor. Mm, absolutely. And actually, all the, the royalties from all his books and things, they went into what is now Langham Partnership. So it really literally did not. He didn't see a penny of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm in a job because of that. So, you know, there we are. <laughs> um, it doesn't surprise me. I think he. Um, yeah, I, I just I just he did walk the walk. I suppose yeah. if I was going to in, in after he died, I was reading some of the, the press on him. And, it, and there were some some people who said and this made me think, actually, that the one criticism you would make is that he wasn't famous. Because somebody who's that impressive and that important ought to be better known. Now, I don't I can't imagine him going on pointless or would I lie to you? So I don't know quite or QI. I don't know what he's supposed to do to get Would them. he be celebrity pointless or or normal something? Yeah, celebrity eggheads. I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? Because also mm. As soon as you magnify him, it changes. Mm. You know, that's the problem. Mm. Once you put him in a studio and you ask him a question, he becomes mm. a politician. But I did think to myself, it's it's really strange, an ongoing strange thing that we've heard of George Carey and Justin Welby mm. and all the others, but we haven't heard of John Stott. Mm. Do you remember specific things that you discussed in that breakfast? I mean, would it be taking a topic one month or something like that? Or how did it work? 
yeah, someone would take a topic, someone would choose a Bible passage, and then they would they would give a kind of amateurish reading of it. And then John would do, he would extemporize on the passage without, I think, having known what it was going to be. And it would be like a perfect 10 minute sermon almost <laughs> with yeah. references, with everything else. So I think the thing, because I, as a broadcaster, I'm always fascinated by the way people speak and the way they convey ideas. And he had an incredible mental clarity and crispness mm. where he was somehow, you know, people have the mind is the horse and the speech is the cart. And sometimes they're almost going in different directions. With him, they were absolutely synced up. So what he, what he thought he said and his thoughts were clear and he would sit there. I'm trying to think of an example of what we did, but, you know, often it would be like the woman caught in the act of adultery or something like that. It would be a personal story that involved the life of Christ. And, and he would talk about the traditions of the time and he would set it in context and then he would say something. Um, and I never, you know, I always found it enriching. I must say, I wish I could remember more. I mean, the only thing I really, really remember really clearly, I went to a Christmas service once and I brought some friends with me, which is quite high stakes. And we made a big cock up, which is that we came, we were, we were on time. So if you're on time for the All Souls <laughs> Christmas service, you end up sitting in the toilets downstairs because there's massive yes. overflow. They have literally, mm. I think it was a thousand people. It might be 2000. It was unbelievable how many people were there. We should have come an hour early, you know, and people, if you sit and then it pushes someone behind a pillar, they get really angry. <laughs> so but anyway, my friends came and I could see they were thinking, ah, whatever. And then he spoke and it was just electrifying. And I remember he said, and it really spoke to one of the people in the group, actually. He said that fathers, when they're very busy and they're not giving enough time to their child, they always shower them with gifts but the key thing about Christ was that it was God giving his own time at mm. Christmas. And I always remember that, the power of that. I, I just remember feeling it just a shiver when I heard that. I thought, yeah, that, that encapsulates the whole gospel message. Jeremy fondly remembers the men's breakfast group that he attended alongside some very influential people, in fact. Jeremy remembers that Stock would sometimes say things that even his friends and supporters disagreed with. And so naturally this would be part of the discussion that followed. The thing about John that would offset any criticism is that everything he said was never for himself. It was always because he'd spent time praying and studying the Bible. So it yeah. was always well footnoted, everything he said. <laughs> yes. I mean, he almost spoke in footnotes as well, didn't he? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I saw when I was at All Souls, I saw lots of people preach. And I and I I was also as a broadcaster, I was always interested, you know, of how how you've got a, a 600, 800 people there and how you hold them. And the there was a person there who and I won't say who it was, but their, but their basic aim of speaking was to string together 12 brilliant anecdotes. And that's incredibly entertaining. But at the end, mm. you couldn't remember what they'd said. Whereas with Scott, he would have a central idea. He would never do, and I'm three points, he'd never do three points. And he would lead you up to some big, simple communication, probably illustrated, and then he'd end on time. And I don't know why, but I, I think he probably wrote them down in longhand as well, because I always felt every single word was spoken and read, which is the best kind of speaking. You always felt... It was an incredible economy there. 
of speech. He didn't yeah. ever over-elaborate, which is death to speakers. But he was never, ever um, busking. And he was never yeah. larging it up. Some people, yeah. you know, that because that's a big stage. And there were people who used to just basically want to get a laugh. And, you know, I'd be like that. I think if I was preaching, I think, you know, we really made them laugh tonight. He wasn't interested in that. No, he he, he wasn't a stand-up, was he? <laughs> he, he was not a stand-up. He wasn't. And I don't, that's all part of the zero ego. The, the difficulty mm. thing, I suppose, the difficulty, I suppose, is, is that the, the there's got to be some ego at play for people to want to be pop stars or preachers or whatever. You've got to want to show off. And there's no doubt Billy Graham was a show off. There's no question. I don't know that John was a show off in that way. And I've seen lots of people preach who've been show offs. And I and it's a, a kind of paradox that he was an amazing speaker without any flourishes. Because I don't necessarily remember rhetorical flourishes or or stories. I mean, the only thing I can remember him telling as an anecdote was that he got a letter from someone saying, I am the son of Christ. And then he looked up and, and the address of the sen sender was uh, a mental hospital. And he used that to illustrate brilliantly. And I think he then referred to that in a book as well. But I don't remember many of his stories. So I feel I feel mm. I let it down here. I was, you know, it's interesting towards the end of his life. I should remember to say this. Um, for whatever reason, towards the end of his life, he did allow me to come and visit him. And I came to visit him a few times in, in a place in Guildford. It was almost... Oh, it's St Barnabas College, that, that retirement place. But once he set about dying, it was really quite rapid, this mm. stot not being stot anymore. It was the way old age claimed him. Mm. And, and I saw him probably in the last two weeks of his life, um... And I did, I did feel, my goodness, we're all mortal. Yes, but even the even great man lying, you know, in, unable to move, in bed, stick thin, or just barely able to say anything, um, you just realise that no one is superhuman. Mm -hmm. Do you think any of the, I guess, the model of communication was uh, any aspects of it with, you took with you into your broadcasting? <laughs> The thing is, I, I worry that I'm the sort of bloke who just strings together 10 anecdotes instead of actually finding, if someone says speak for half an hour. Because you can wing it. Well, they're not, I never wing it. I would always prepare if I was speaking someone. Okay. But it's not so much that. It's more that, that his thing was depth and method. There was another mm. preacher at the church called David Turner, who's a QC and a judge. Mm. Yep. He's still there. Very Yeah, he had a very similar technique you got a lot of content mm. and i think the only way you get that level of content is through a lot of work and i mm. suppose his sermons his preaching was very well worked and i know that people again when they look back at his life they say okay there's always two strands to a person man or woman in the church one is the preaching and the other is the pastoral and the preaching with john was sensational but what was it? What about the pastoral? And I'm sure that was going on, but I was never really conscious of it. And there was a famous when all my friends, we were all in our 20s and we all started marrying each other, marrying the wrong people or whatever, you know, and uh, well, in some cases, the right people. 
but we all wanted John Stott to do the service, right? And we all thought we all thought we'd had this thought for the first time. I'm going to ask John Stott to preach. At oh, my radical! Wedding. Yeah, and it, I think he was getting a hundred requests a week to speak at people's weddings. And I discovered, because I asked as well, that he said no to everybody. It just yeah. it just was too much. To, once you say yes yeah. to somebody, you would literally be speaking at five weddings a week. So he just mm. said no to everyone. So I did ask him to speak. And uh, yeah, he um, he said no. <laughs> I don't know what Not he even was. you. Perhaps it was because the breakfast had been the primary place of getting to know John. Jeremy talked about how he wasn't really aware of John's pastoral side. He'd not really seen it in action. But he does remember a time when Stott engaged with a friend of his back in the 90s. And on this particular case, Jeremy feels that Stott got it wrong. My friend was married, but the marriage wasn't going well. And, and both he and his wife were Christians. And they began, with, they didn't have kids, but they, they drifted apart. And in the end, the inevitable happens and they have to get divorced. And they'd be married actually in all souls. And my friend had a, a good relationship with John Stott. And John, at the point where all of this was happening, heard about it and wrote my friend a letter and said, this is all wrong, divorce is wrong. You shouldn't go down this route. Please, please, please try again. Um, and the friend in the end, it was, it was unstoppable. And a number of things happened in the years since. The friend remarried very happily and had two beautiful daughters. And the friend's wife, then ex-wife, then also remarried and also was very, very happy and had a, a beautiful daughter herself. Now, if you look at all of that, it's very difficult to say that John was right. And here I'm probably being unfair because he's, you know, he's passed away and, and he might well give me 17 scriptural references to prove he was right. Or he might say, well, yeah, fair enough. These things happen. Do you think the, do you think the letter was, was too harsh or was the tone right of it? I saw the letter happens and the letter was very gracious and kind and, mm -hmm. and not hurtful and not, as you would say, preachy. It was just almost compassionate actually. And it was clearly, it was a bit of a generational thing as well. I think, you know, there's 30 years difference between these two people. And, and maybe John came from, you know, an era where you couldn't ever get divorced. But I remember thinking even the great John Stott maybe, maybe called that wrong. Our book review this time is from Daniel Kell, who is based in Dublin. He's a former student of Tilsley College. And he's thinking about the book of Bible devotions through the year with John Stott. Recently, uh, over the past year, um, myself and my wife have been reading through uh, Through the Year with John Stott, uh, which is a series of um, daily devotionals uh, going through the whole Council of Scripture. Um, it's split into three parts and, and basically goes into um, all the books of the Bible at some point, um, bringing out uh, lessons from them. Uh, and it's been really helpful going through it day by day. Daily devotions are, are quite short, and but always practical and following true scripture rather than being 
um, separated devotions like you find in other devotionals um, going through every day uh, chronologically through scripture uh, we have um, the full picture and um, and so that's really beneficial uh, trying to get our heads into it the devotions are always very practical um, and uh, have often helped us in our prayers then uh, as we um, pray together and pray for others and for ourselves um, often we're able to incorporate things uh, from the devotion uh, into it uh, it's also very helpful in that you can start it at any time of the year um, it doesn't have to be started uh, at January um, although um, there is a section that you can start from January to April in order to get uh, Christmas until Easter um, sort of in time with that if you wish. So yeah, we've really enjoyed uh, looking at it um, and even our daughter is there when we read it and uh, the lessons are so simple and easy to grasp that we are then able to, to tell her the lessons that we found in there uh, as well. So I've read your uh, sort of memoir which is an absolute hoot and stories of the boxing department and then South Africa and various other things what do you think are the particular challenges in journalism for people of uh, from a faith position are there any particular ones yeah the particular one is answering that question because what happens mm. is that you get people saying we're going to pray for you in the media and stuff like that and it makes you feel really uncomfortable because I don't think that other people who have other faiths or no faith are any mm better or worse, journalists, reporters, broadcasters, entertainers, whatever. Uh, I think it would be a bit of a dereliction of my (laughs) duty as a journalist if I started trying to slide in gospel quotes into news bulletins. No, no, of course. Of course. Yeah, but I mean, it is, it is, I I suppose there have been times where I've had an ethical dilemma of some sort. I mean, the classic would be where somebody wants to speak to you and they're in such shock and grief that you know that they'll regret it if they do and it would help you to speak to them but you have to sort of say i don't think this is the time for you to do this um i mean i can think about an an interview i i I was offered recently with somebody who was who was only about a year after a very very bad accident and i just felt that they weren't really in a good way to talk now I don't think that generally the values of the BBC or whatever are askance from that. So there isn't a conflict there. Yeah. I suppose, yeah. i tell you what I think the biggest challenge is, I mean, is just to keep hoping that the world's a good place and that people are good. Yeah. Because, of course, the problem with news, the problem with news generally is that it only reports the things that are bad. And Well, it's not news if it's good, is it? <laughs> well, of course not, because most, if you're in, if you're in Syria and something good happens, mm. that is news. If you're in the UK and something good happens, it's, it, thankfully, it's pretty normal. So it's not news. So we report the trains that are late and the hospitals that are dirty and the planes that crash. And then people turn on the news and they say, that is not the world I live in. And isn't mm. that strange that we're giving them a fictional view of their world and telling them that it's everything that's true? So the, 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 you know, there's an amazing paradox. And also we do tend as well to miss the gray. We miss the nuance. So there's a brilliant song by Elvis Costello, my hero, who mm. in fact, it would be funny to say John Stott and Elvis Costello were two of my heroes. That's such a great pairing. 
but he, he did a song called Green Shirt and, and the song goes, there's a smart young woman in a light blue dress comes into my house every night. She takes all the red, yellows, oranges and greens and she turns them into black and white. And that's what yeah. we do. We take all the colours and we turn them into black and white. And yeah. and I think a, a bit, you know, I think that's the same with evangelical Christianity a bit. Yeah. It does yeah. sift everything down. And of course, the more tabloid it is, the more sellable it is but the more problematic it is when things go wrong, you know? So news has something in common with evangelical Christianity. Who knew? <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Um, <laughs> so so you'd have Uncle John and Elvis Costello at your fantasy dinner party then, would you? Oh, gosh, I would. But I think Elvis, I think both of them would be quite shy. I don't think they'd perform. Yes. Um, I'd love, <laughs> I suppose, I, I don't think that I ever sensed that John had any great love of art, actually. Now, that's odd, but reading his books, I don't detect a lot mm. of quoting of stuff. I don't think I ever heard him necessarily even quote Shakespeare. I certainly don't sense that he had any particular musical thing going on. I don't know. But I always think, because I love music. Mm. If he had said to me, even once, I love the music of Led Zeppelin, I would never have forgotten it. But I never heard him declare a passion like that. And I, I mean, I know from my parents, my parents, is, you know, as, a, as I mentioned, they, they, you know, my dad became Christian because of John Stott and they would be very much the one suit owning type of Christian. You know, there was one suit and a car that literally the doors fell off before they sold it. And they would be the same. They missed the Beatles. They missed, you know, obviously they didn't like the Sex Pistols. They had no cultural um, reference points. And I, it always confused me. Where are the novels in this house? Because then my mum and dad just had loads and loads of books on theology. I said, Where the, where's the literature here? When I got Bolshe teenage, teenager, you know. <laughs> and I, I suppose, I wonder now, now now we're talking about John. I never saw him with a, reading a book that wasn't the Bible. But I, I'd heard, and maybe this is wrong, but that that breakfast group would go off and see the odd play and then discuss it, and or a movie or a, a, a book, just to keep a bit of a hand in. But I guess that wasn't necessarily par for the course. Okay, it's possible that they all went off without me, but it's more likely <laughs> <laughs> that I think he had a different group. So this, what we're talking about here is the men's, so-called uh, men's breakfast group. I think he had a sort of cultural awareness group, and it might have uh, been Julia Bicknell and people might have been in it. And I think this was a group where they went to see, I mean, he did like Woody Allen, strangely. He did <laughs> talk about Woody Allen. I'm remembering because he used to get because he said, "Oh, we just seen the new Woody Allen film. What an amazing <laughs> film it was!" So yeah, <laughs> and of course, Woody Allen is a really—I mean, these days his his reputation is checkered to say the least. But yes. at the time, that's quite an interesting choice because oh. it's all about that very subversive, yes. obviously Jewish comedy. The, the sort of thing where the, the, the proponent, the protagonist is always so flawed and everything's always messed up. So, yeah, he did have a big Woody Allen thing. Because actually I remember seeing on YouTube an extraordinary time when Billy Graham went on Woody Allen's chat show. Woody Allen, really? That? No. Yeah, it, it's the most bizarre sort of combination. And yet it kind of works because they... They obviously have a degree of respect for one another. It's, it's, it's quite bizarre. So maybe it's through Billy that John got into Woody Allen. Who knows? I always wonder, because once you go, the, the, if you go into the evangelical side, obviously he was big in the States and, yes. and you've got the Billy Graham and that's fine. And we all love Billy Graham. And then you've got Billy Graham's son, 
who yeah. called for Al Qaeda to be nuked. So then it gets a little mm. bit wild. And quite soon you're at Jim Baker, who bought an air-conditioned dog mm. kennel with church funds and Oral Roberts oh, yeah. and Jimmy Swagger. And I was I never talked to John about those people, but I think he would have been completely horrified, actually. Yes. I think there was a I don't know whether it was specifically because of those incidents, but I think he was really trying to call for a simple lifestyle, which you already talked about. Mm. And that would have run completely counter to those examples, um, even if he didn't have those in mind specifically. So, yes, I think it was anathema to. Yeah, it's funny that he had no no luxuries. I mean, I don't because it's quite hard to to live in London post-war mm. and to not decide that you like a glass of Prosecco or something, you know, or just mm. you have one mm. tiny luxury like you, you know, you've got a particular record collection or a play you love or whatever or mm. I don't know, or some kind of food or a restaurant, just one restaurant. But I wasn't aware of anything. Maybe it was just really high precision binoculars for bird watching, maybe. Yes. Um, I mean, I remember <laughs> he came back from some bird watching thing and he'd been in, I think, in the Antarctic or whatever. So he'd been in the back of beyond. And it was billed as John Stott shows you his pictures of oh, birds. Oh, the snowy owl. Yeah. And we all went down into the basement of All Souls and you know what's going to happen as soon as I'm this, you know, as a, as a sort of broadcaster, I know what's going to happen before it happens, which is that the equipment's going to break. I mean, it's absolutely clear. <laughs> so someone brings out this slide projector, which clearly hasn't been used for 10 years. And he has like 500 slides. And as soon as they put them in, it starts smoking, you know, and then it's 20 <laughs> minutes. And I was watching John, and all these people were trying to push it and shove it. And probably not one of his snowy owl photos, because they wouldn't. That would have been the days you put the original negative in, you know. Yeah. It was amazing that he didn't look angry. He didn't look as <laughs> if he was going to lose his rag. They got all these people to see your pictures of the snowy owl, and it's just gone up in flames. <laughs> it didn't look cross. And I don't remember any... They got it working at the end. But I don't remember mm. any of the slides. All I remember is thinking, that would not have been me. And maybe that's the key yeah. thing. That would not have been me. That's... That's not my life he lived. He's, he lived a better life. You remember the smoke, but not the snowy owl. There were a lot of slides. So we all felt, I don't know what, you know, can you imagine a situation where you get a load of 20-somethings who all want to basically be having a drink with each other, going into a basement room to watch pictures of a, of a bird taken by a very old man. I mean, that would not happen now. <laughs> but no, I just remember the mess with the slide projector and uh, just thinking, uh, how is he not losing his rag here? When you start to be at the level he's at, you, you get these encounters which are extraordinary, but for you, they're ordinary. So for him, he obviously had some kind of relationship with the queen. And because mm -hmm. I think that the, he was the queen's personal rector or something, I don't know. Was it one of the queen's chaplains? Yeah, so he, he was one of the queen's chaplains. He never once mentioned her, you know, and all mm -hmm. souls had a guy in it who was the queen's dentist. And, and I know this because I knew, knew this bloke. And, and she used to come into his his dental surgery under the name Mrs. Robbins. And he would then treat the Queen's teeth. And it's something it's something about the this very classy sort of group of people is that, and I'm certainly not one of them, they never, ever trade on the name. You know, he would never say, he would never say, last time I saw the Queen, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Never. But when I was up at Balmoral. <laughs> no. And and it's quite you have to actually make an effort to avoid telling those stories because I bet for him 
it was a stunning thing to go and see. Um, I'm just trying to think of anything. I did go to see his Welsh, what was it called? The, his uh, the Welsh. Hookses. Yeah. We all went to stay at the Hookses once, all these sort of junior church yeah. people. And we went to see the cathedral at St. David's, would it be, which is quite close. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and then we repaired his garden path, I remember. And he was sitting in the house writing and bringing out cups of tea. It was absolutely lovely. Yeah. It's a really amazing yeah. thing. And it... And I think he had a picture of the Hookses in, in his house, and it was just this view of the sea from a window. And it was, yep. it, it, it's an amazing place. I hope, in a way, I hope it's still yeah. got his name on the front door. Oh, it does. He's buried there now. Really? Is that um, right? Gosh. In the, in the village, in the, the churchyard in Dale Village. So we were there just about a month ago or so. Wow. That's lovely. Mm. Yeah. So it's a super place. Can you, could you summarize perhaps his legacy for you personally? Of course. Um, all I can say about John Stott, the thing that stays with me, and I did see him right towards the end of his life before he died, is that every single time he spoke to me, I felt he was speaking to me personally and there was no one else around. And I always thought that was very much what you'd feel if you were talking to Christ. But the funny thing was that you'd feel that even if you were in a congregation and he was preaching, that he was talking to you. and it's very unusual in this world to meet a person with no ego. And you particularly don't meet them when they've achieved the kind of things that John had achieved in terms of his writing and his thinking and his preaching and the sales of his books. But he had no ego whatsoever. Remarkable. That's a great note. Great note to end with. So thank you very much indeed. There are many things unusual about Langham Partnership. One of them is the fact that despite working in nearly 90 countries, you won't find representative offices and buildings anywhere. Long before the pandemic enforced it, our staff and volunteers have been working from home for years. But particularly because of the demands of Langham Literature's multiple publishing projects, as well as the growing complexity of administering and financing all the different projects of the three programmes, namely Langham Literature, Langham Scholars and Langham Preaching, an expanded warehouse with office space was urgently needed. Uh, for the last few years, a rented warehouse in Carlisle in Cumbria, in the north of England, was being used, but it was pretty clear that it was too small. And this week saw the teams moving into a brand new customised space known as the Langham Service Centre, also in Carlisle. So please do give thanks for the generosity of those who gave towards it and for all the teams working there as they adapt and develop to this new phase. Pray especially that the three Langham programs would go from strength to strength as a result of this newly invigorated and supported administrative side. You've been listening to The Stop Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marse, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org. 
And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, goodbye.